the... Hello. I am the youth pastor here, if you don't know who I am. It's, uh, it's kind of funny that I'm speaking today, because at our old church, I would get to speak twice a year uh, for our youth and young adult services on Sunday evenings, and it would be this week, during spring break, because all the other pastors were on vacation, uh, and it would be once in the summer. And since it was a youth and young adult service, it was always the two least attended services, because everyone was on vacation. And so now I'm speaking because, well, Brad's on vacation, <laughs> and uh, Wally and I are going to split uh, the next two weeks while Brad is away uh, and go into our series on Your Kingdom Come, The Shape of the Kingdom. Uh, and we're going to try to answer as much as we can answer what the kingdom of God that Jesus talks about looks like. And so in order to talk about the kingdom of God, we have to compare it to something a little bit more tangible, something that we can see and grasp a little more easily. And that more naturally goes with the kingdom of this world. And so as we go, I'm sure there's going to be many comparing and contrasting and what the kingdom of God looks like and what the kingdom of the world looks like. And we're going to do that today with what power looks like in the kingdom of God. And so looking at power, uh, Forbes actually released the most powerful people of 2016 uh, late in the year last year. And we can see on that list some of the things that the world sees as power, what makes someone powerful. So we're going to look at the top four. And number one there is Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. And Forbes says that he is the most powerful person in the world of 2016 because he gets what he wants. And that's what makes him the most powerful person. He gets what he wants. Apparently that's Crimea. And depending on whether you believe the news reports or not, Donald Trump in the White House, if that whole hacking thing is true. I don't read that much into it, so Walter <laughs> believes it's true. Uh, so he's number one, because he gets what he wants. Number two is Donald Trump, and at this time, he was the U.S. president-elect, because it was still 2016. He wasn't president, so it wasn't quite because he was president that he was powerful, but it was very obvious why they thought Donald Trump was powerful, because right underneath his name, in big bold letters was $3.7 billion, which was his real-time net worth uh, when the list came out. And so he's powerful because he is a billionaire uh, at that time. And now he's president, so that probably just adds to his power. But wealth and resources equals power in the world. Number three on the list is Angela Merkel, the German chancellor. I think that's how you say it. Chancellor, that, good. My wife is nodding, so it's right. <laughs> and she knows German, so. Uh, the last bastion of Western liberal power is what Forbes call her. Uh, so she has uh, the education. She also has the status and the title of being the leader of Germany, which is the strongest in the EU right now. Uh, so that helps with her status, title, and role, uh, having that high status. And role equals power. And number four, this is going to be the hard one to pronounce, <laughs> Xi Jinping. Close enough. Thank you. General Secretary of China was the fourth most powerful um, of the Communist Party of China. 
And he is because of his military force, China having the largest military in the world, and that places him number four on the list. And so with these top four, we see what the world thinks means power. You get what you want, you're wealthy, have lots of resources, you have status, title, position, or you have a large military force backing you. And Jesus comes and he exercises power in a different way than the world exercises power. And we're going to look at that today through the framework of Matthew 4, where Jesus is being tempted by the devil. And there are temptations in him to exert power in the way that the world exerts power. So in Matthew 4, Jesus has just been baptized And he is led into the wilderness. And it's reflecting Israel's story in the Old Testament with Exodus. So Israel comes through out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, which the New Testament likes to draw the comparison with coming through the Red Sea and baptism. And they go into the wilderness. And Jesus is baptized and he goes into the wilderness. Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. And Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And then Israel falls into temptation. Moses goes up on the mountain. They get worried so they make a golden calf. And they bow down to worship that golden calf. Jesus faces three temptations from the devil. And he doesn't fall completing what Israel should have done at that time. So in Matthew 4, we're going to look at the first temptation in verses 1 to 4 in the New Living Translation. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So first, Satan uses the title son of God, which does literally mean that Jesus is God's son. But it was also a title that was commonly used in the Roman Empire for Caesar. It was a title given to him. He was the son of God. It was a title with authority and power, just like a title of president or Uh, prime minister would be today. So he's calling on Jesus's power as son of God first. And the kind of power that Jesus is tempting him is to abuse his power of resource. It's not simply just making bread to eat and break his fast. I don't think that would have been such a grievous sin that uh, God would have been angry with him for, but it's actually how to use his power. The best way to someone's heart is through their stomach. I know it's at least true for me. Feeding people. And when you're in the ancient Roman Empire, first century, no such thing as the middle class. You're either poor or you're rich. And if you're poor, then you're hungry. And so we see what kind of temptation this was for Jesus to face in one of the two feeding stories, as John talks about it in John 5, or 6, 5 to 15. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? 
Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. And when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. So we see Jesus' temptation in the desert show more plainly. All he had to do was feed the people and they wanted to make him king. That was the kind of abuse of power that Satan wanted Jesus to use. To use his power of resource to gain more power. So in Satan's temptation, he wants Jesus to abuse that power of resource. And in the feeding stories, Jesus does use that power of resource. So what's the difference between the suggested use by Satan and the use that Jesus actually uses? The abuse of power of resources is to use that resource, in this case bread, in order to move up the social power ladder. ladder. He could feed the people and they would make him his king and he would receive all the privilege that would come with kingship. Esteem, wealth, love of the people. But the problem with abusing the power of resources to gain more power is it leads to hoarding. And it perpetuates the gap between the rich and the poor. In order to keep his power as king, he would have to control all that food. So he would be, make sure he didn't give too much food to people. And he would have to make sure that he wouldn't give too little food of people. Because as soon as people have free access to that resource and can feed themselves, they don't need Jesus as king anymore. They wouldn't need him. And so he would have to control that resource in order to keep his power. That was the kind of power that Satan was trying to get him to use. In the feeding story, Jesus doesn't use the power in order to gain more power. He uses it because he has compassion on the people. He does what Donald Craybill calls in his book, Upside Down Kingdom, looking down the ladder. He sees the people who are below him in power. They're poor and they're hungry and he has compassion on them. And so he feeds them from compassion rather than desiring to, desiring to have power over them and to become more powerful. The second temptation in Matthew, uh, we see in the next verses. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. So now, Satan still uses the son of God title. But now he's changing it. He's changing it to tempt Jesus to exercise power from a position that other people exercise power. And that's from the very top. The temple is the center of the Jewish religion. Everyone who had any religious power pretty much lived at this temple. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, the scribes, anyone that had any influence in the Jewish religion pretty much lived at the temple. And so he takes them to the top, and you can see it's very high in the middle there. 
and he's trying to get Jesus to jump off of that high spot. And if he does that and he lands safely in the courtyard in front of all the religious elite, his messianic identity is confirmed. They would all immediately believe that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. There would be no fighting with the scribes and Pharisees. There would be no plot to kill him and there would be no cross to suffer. Maybe he would become the new high priest and from within the system, maybe he could put in his religious reforms. That was the temptation that was placed before Jesus. And yet he rejects this temptation and instead we get this story in John again. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to, drink, to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? If Jesus had accepted Satan's offer of jumping off that temple, he would have only exercised his power and authority amongst Jewish men and the religious elite of those Jewish men. But Jesus exercises his messianic power amongst those on the bottom of the power ladder. With just his first three words, please, or four words, please give me a drink, five words. <laughs> his first five words, Jesus shatters three barriers. The first barrier is the Samaritan. He shatters barriers of ethnicity. First off, as you can kind of see on the small map, Samaria is right between Galilee in the north, where Jesus is from, and Judea on the bottom, where Jerusalem is. And so there's, that's a common path between Galilee and Judea as everyone has to go down to Jerusalem uh, for Passover festival and some other festivals. So they have to travel. Jews hated Samaritans so much that they would actually just walk around Samaria and that adds a week to their journey. They would rather walk a full week than go through Samaria. And yet here Jesus is sitting in Samaria smack dab in a village. And the reason they despise Samaritans so much is they are the product of Jews during the exile who didn't get taken away to Babylon. They stayed in the land and they ended up marrying with other nations. And so Samaritans were a mix of Jews and other nations around the time, which in the Jewish thought meant that they were impure people. Uh, Donald Crable says, I think it was Crable or maybe it was Shane Claiborne. I read a couple books. <laughs> He says that Samaritan back in the day would be the same kind of context as terrorist would mean for us today. And yet here Jesus sits. And because they're a mixed race, even touching anything that a Samaritan touched would make you ceremonial, in, ceremonially impure. And you'd have to go through all these rites of cleansing. So not only does Jesus come into Samaria and talk to a Samaritan, but he asked for a glass of water, well, a cup of water. And as soon as she would fill that cup and give it to him, and if he touched it, he would be considered unclean. So Jesus is flattening that power ladder by looking to the rungs below him down to the Samaritan. The second barrier he breaks is that she's a woman. 
He breaks the gender barrier. And women were on the bottom of the social ladder. It wasn't even until 1929 that women in Canada were considered persons. Less than 100 years ago, women weren't considered people in Canada. This is probably the barrier that's maybe the closest to what we experience today. In ancient Israel, a woman's testimony in court didn't even count. It was invalid. They could not own land. They had absolutely no power. A rabbi named Jeremiah had taught this. He said, a man should hold no conversation with a woman in the street, not even his own wife, still less with any other woman, lest men should gossip. Oh, and Jeremiah, he wasn't a first century rabbi. He said that in 1975. But that was the attitude of first century Jews. Women were good at making babies. And they were only good at making babies if they made male ones. That was their attitude. And yet here is Jesus talking with a woman by himself, asking for a cup of water. Again, risking his ceremonial cleanliness, his ceremonial purity. Because if she was on his, her menstruation cycle and he touched that cup, he would have been impure again. Third barrier he breaks is the sinner. Later in the passage, he says to her, go and get your husband. I don't have a, a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands. And you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. This woman is an adulteress, a fact that Jesus apparently knew beforehand. And yet he talks with her. Any of the religious elite would not have come near this woman. They wouldn't have touched her with a 10-foot pole. And even being in her presence, again, could contaminate him. If he was exercising his power amongst the religious elite, he would not have been in Samaria in the first place, and he wouldn't even come near a sinful Samaritan woman. And yet he exercises his power amongst those on the margins, on the bottom of society. And what happens? The woman whose testimony does not count in court goes and tells her whole village who come out and see Jesus and believe in him. He exercises his power on those, on the, with the people on the bottom, on the margins, and a whole village comes to know him. The third temptation in Matthew it says, next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. In his third temptation, Satan tries to get Jesus to exercise power the way the empire exercises power. And this was perhaps the most tempting of the temptations that Jesus faced because this is what the Jewish people expected of their Messiah, minus the worshiping Satan part. The Old Testament understanding of salvation had nothing to do with forgiveness of sins. They had the sacrificial system for that forgiveness of sins, but it's never talked about in the saving act. We've linked those two together. 
partly because of Paul's writings, so it's not necessarily wrong. But their idea of salvation was rooted in Exodus. Salvation was deliverance from oppression. The messianic hope that we see throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets during exile, was not for a Messiah that looked like what Jesus would end up being, but a Messiah that was more like what Moses was. They were looking for a new Moses to come, and just as Moses had delivered Israel and saved them from Egypt, they were looking for a new Moses-like Messiah who would first deliver them from under the oppression of Babylon in which they were in exile. And when Persia came and took over Babylon, they were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them from Persia. And when Greece came and took over Persia, they're looking for a Messiah that would take them away from Greece. And when Rome eventually comes to power, they're looking for a Messiah that will deliver them from oppression under Rome. The Old Testament messianic hope was linked with the nations. So deliverance would be a national saving act of Israel. The Messiah they were looking for would beat Rome at their own game of military victory over Rome. And Jesus refused to receive all the kingdoms of the world through violence, through expanding the kingdom by taking over other kingdoms. And yet our idea of power today is strongly linked with military and violent force. And Jesus turns this idea of power upside down and replaces violence as a sign of power with something else. In the upside down kingdom, Donald Craybill says this, Jesus redefined the meaning of power when he refused to use violent force. Nevertheless, it was hard for him to toss the lure of force aside. Matthew and Mark report three occasions when Jesus spoke of suffering as the new form of messianic power. Each time, the disciples were arguing over how much power and authority they would have in the kingdom. In all three cases, Jesus responded by teaching them about suffering discipleship. And one such passage is Matthew 20. And then it says, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right hand and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. This conversation happens as Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem. And the disciples probably thought that Jesus was getting ready to exert his messianic power, which he was, but not in the way that they were expecting. They probably thought that he was going to go in and kick out the Romans and set up the new kingdom of Israel, because that's what every Messiah before him had come and tried to do to various degrees of success. They probably thought that the cup of suffering that Jesus was talking about was the pain and suffering in battle. And they were ready to be right next to him and fight that battle. But Jesus was talking about suffering at the hands of that power in order to defeat that power. Jesus does not say, if anyone wants to follow me, they should pick up their sword, defeat the enemy, and establish the kingdom. Instead, he says, if you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. But how is suffering power? 
Jesus' words are so upside down in our context that it makes us scratch our heads. How is a man nailed to a cross a sign of power for that man that's on that cross? Is that not a sign of power for the person who put him there? Shane Claiborne points out that only failed messiahs hung on crosses. How does any of this make sense? The only way that this can make sense, the only way it makes sense that Jesus calls us to also exert power by suffering is by combining two of our Christian symbols. Our first really famous one of the cross and the second of the empty tomb. The use of violence in the sword testifies that death is the ultimate power. The nation with the largest military is the most powerful because of its ability to use the ultimate power of death most efficiently and most effectively. For Rome, their power was on display by nailing people to crosses. Anyone who tried to overthrow them, they nailed on crosses and put on the side of the road so that anyone who walked by could see what happens to people who challenge Rome's power. They saw death as the ultimate power. And yet Jesus turns all of this upside down by willingly being subjected to the ultimate power of death. He willingly dies on our symbol of the cross and he defeats that ultimate power by being raised again, our symbol of the empty tomb. Death is no longer the ultimate power because Jesus has, de been, has defeated it by being raised from the dead. And so now when Jesus' followers pick up their cross and suffer, some of them even dying for the sake of God, they testify that violence is not power. Death is not the ultimate power because Jesus has defeated it. The world is trying to exert power by threatening death, but that's not actually power because Jesus has undermined it. By willingly suffering and dying for Christ, we exert power because we know that we will be raised like Jesus has been raised because death has no power. All right, let's bring us home. Satan's first temptation was to have Jesus use resources to gain power. In what ways do we use our resources to exert power over people? How much money are you willing to give someone without expecting anything in return? $20? $50? $100? Jesus tells his audience one time that when they have a party, not to invite any of their friends. He sh they should go out to the streets, invite the homeless and the poor and the stranger. And while I don't think Jesus is saying never, ever have a party with your friends, uh, someone at our old church actually did this. Uh, they went out and they invited the homeless and strangers and the poor and, and had a meal together. And they said it was a fantastic experience. And they wanted to do it once a month. So there is some value in taking Jesus' words literally in here. But I don't think that was the main thrust of his argument. I think what he was trying to get across is that we shouldn't be using our resources in order to hold power over people. I have a friend who is one of the most generous people that I know. Every time we hang out with him and his wife, he will buy the meal. And he doesn't do it expecting that we're going to pay him back because he will buy the meal every single time. In order for Caitlin and I to pay for a meal... We either, one of us have to tackle him and go pay, or we have to like sneak and do it somehow. And, and our desire to pay him back for all his generosity is nothing to do with him suddenly or 
not so subtly communicating that he thinks we should pay him back because he doesn't think that at all. He will just pay every single time, expecting nothing in return. But our desire to pay him back is just because it's so ingrained in us that if someone does something for us, we need to do something for them. It's about as hard to receive something from someone without them expecting you to pay it back as it is to give something without expecting payback. Probably harder. Craybill says that one of the factors that undergird Jesus' use of power is that he used power and mobilized resources to serve the needs of the hurting and the stigmatized. Jesus didn't use power for self-gain or self-glory. We use our resource power not for self-gain, not to hold power over others, but to serve them. Just like his feeding stories, he uses his power to serve and not to become king. The second, second temptation was to exercise power amongst the elite. To associate only with those of reputable respect and avoid anyone else not like you. And yet Jesus descends down the power ladder to those on the bottom. Jesus inverts that ladder. He says the first will be last and the last will be first. Instead of the few having all the power and privilege over the many... He flips it, and the many have power and privilege over the few. But that is not his final goal. Jesus' upside-down power isn't to actually just flip the power ladder and leave it that way. He wants to flatten it. Craybill again says, The upside-down perspective uses power to empower others. It seeks to provide others with the resources for self-determination. We should distribute power as widely as possible. The world uses that power to have the few have privilege over the many. Jesus flips that in order to flatten it. It's not a call for everyone to actually be more independent, but to be more dependent. Crable says again, you can tell what book I read the most, but I love this quote. Instead of pursuing the number one spot, he prods us to ignore the hierarchy as children do. He tells us to become blind to status differences and like infants, see all others as equally significant despite their social rank. Instead of clamoring for more and more power, we followers of Jesus happily share it. We welcome interdependence. Rather than claiming self-sufficiency, we acknowledge our need for community and dependence on others. Blind to social distinctions, dependent on others, we live as children, for of such is God's kingdom. Where do we give, need to give up some of our power to be more dependent on God and to be more dependent on each other? Or perhaps for some of us, it's the reverse. Where are we too dependent on other people and need to get a little bit more power in order to help serve one another? Third, Satan tempts Jesus to seize power by force and coercion as the empire does. Three understandings that Jesus had about authority. One, he saw himself as a steward of God's power. It was God who gave him the right to speak. Do we see power as our own right or something that God has given us? If we see it as our own right, will you use it selfishly? Second, he carefully used his authority in a way to not bring himself prestige, but his words and his deeds reflected God's desire. Do we use our power to lift ourselves up or to lift up God? 
And 30 used authority to serve and help others. They were the beneficiaries of his power. Who benefits from our power? Do we benefit? Do those above us benefit? Or do those in the bottom benefit? See, using violence is a selfish use of power. And using violence to gain power says three things. First is one that I already said. It testifies that death is the ultimate power. But it's not because Jesus has defeated it. Second, it says that your life is more important than that other person's life. That you lift yourself up higher by taking someone else's life. And third, it says that that person is beyond the power of Jesus' redemption. That thing that that person done is so evil that it's unforgivable and so they deserve to die. As the band comes up, to say that Jesus' use of power is revolutionary. Because Jesus exercised this power, he was nailed to the cross. When you exercise power in this way, it is threatening to the people who are in power. They want to keep it that way. But when you exercise this power, it says they're actually not that powerful. Getting what you want is not power. Using resources to gain more power, having lots of wealth and hoarding it, is not power. Having a status or a title or a role and exerting power from the top down isn't power. And death is not the ultimate power because Jesus has died on the cross, raised again, and says that we're promised to be raised again at the end. Coming to the foot of the cross doesn't mean relinquishing all power because God has given you power for a reason to help benefit those on the bottom. Jesus wants to flatten the power ladder and he uses his church in a way to do that. We're going to have prayer response teams on the side for you that you can come and pray with them. Perhaps this kind of community that exerts power in this way that flattens the power ladder is something that you haven't heard before and it's something that you want to join. I invite you to come and pray with us on the side. There will be Ali and Deb with little Nathaniel uh, and myself and Wally on the side uh, as the band leads us in worship.
Jesus, you made his power. 